Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Dasha Nekrasova, whose truly unnerving and also quite funny film, The Scary of 61st, is out now. The Scary of 61st is about two roommates who find a reasonably priced Manhattan apartment and then discover it was previously owned by sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein. It's a movie about the dark mystery surrounding the convicted pedophile that hosts to men like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and Prince Andrew, and how the elites stay in power. At the time of our conversation, accused Epstein enabler and woman whose name I'm about to mispronounce, Ghislaine Maxwell was on trial, and as I say these words, a Manhattan jury is deliberating her fate. Epstein, of course, is dead, reportedly of a suicide while in a jail cell awaiting his own trial on sex trafficking charges, though Nekrasova and many more find it very difficult to believe that he killed himself. You may know Dasha from her very entertaining podcast, Red Scare, where she and fellow child of the Soviet Union, Anna Katyan, criticized both the left and right with brutal glee. They're extremely well-read, and I probably understand only about two-thirds of the references, but I like the way they deliver takes that range from absurd to paradigm shifting in the same cool, bored-sounding tone. Dasha rose to internet fame when she was at South by Southwest in 2018, promoting her and Eugene Kotlyarenko's open relationship comedy Wobble Palace, when a reporter for InfoWars began peppering her with wacky criticisms of socialism, and Dasha, who was dressed in a sailor costume at the time, coolly dismissed them all by uttering, I just want people to have health care, honey. Red Scare welcomes people from across the political spectrum, and people who are frankly too weird to place anywhere in that spectrum, including most recently InfoWars' Alex Jones, which earned the podcast more pearl-clutching than is typical, as well as some unusually fervent tusk-tusking. The Scary of 61st is an obvious homage to Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, but you may also catch some wonderful other cinematic homages, including to the Whit Stillman film, Last Days of Disco. You may also know Dasha Nekrasova from the latest season of Succession, where she played beleaguered flack Comfrey Pellets, a marvelous name that we will discuss in some detail at the end of this conversation. And now, here's Dasha Nekrasova. The Scary of 61st is now playing in New York and Los Angeles, and you can watch it on demand on Christmas Eve. If you're moving around with a phone, there's a little bit like scratchy sound. Oh, is can um, you hear me like this? Yeah, you're great. Still. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm super self-conscious because I just interviewed uh, Sean Baker about um, about Red Rocket and his dog was in the background the whole time, so I had to like edit out Sean Baker's dog. <laughs> that'll happen yeah so just to start congratulations on the movie it's so mesmerizing honestly the way it all comes together and obviously we we know kind of a lot about this movie movie maker because you were our cover story in spring yes thank you so much for featuring me so prominently it was very nice of you thank you it's actually one of my favorite things we've ever done and I still get emails all the time from people all over the world saying, can you send this issue to Australia and stuff like that? So, Oh, that's nice. But for people who don't know, can you just explain what the scary of 61st is? Um, yes. The scary of 61st is my debut feature film. It is in which I also star and co-wrote with my writing partner, Madeline Quinn, who also acts in the film. It's a... I guess it's a kind of a paranoiac, psychosexual thriller 
set in December of 2019, shortly after the murder of Jeffrey Epstein. It's about two girls who move into an apartment on the Upper East Side that they discover um, once they are intruded upon by a third girl that the apartment used to belong to Jeffrey Epstein himself. Um, and then various, yeah, satanic antics ensue. And you are the third girl. I am, yes. Only called the girl. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, where did the idea for this first come from? I mean, you obviously had a lot of background with the Epstein case because you had a friend who was a Jane Doe and you went to mm -hmm. hear her, her, her victim statement. Um, yes, I went to court the day that the victims made their statements they, uh, where they said what they would have said had they had their day in court, which was obviously very heavy. I had already begun scripting by then. I was, um, I was very active initially in New York City's Epstein Truther community. Um, cause as you can imagine, his murder made quite a splash, especially in New York city, um, because it felt so geographically located here. And he was obviously so involved in real estate and was sort of a, yeah, like a prominent person in high society, um, and so I was having like Epstein Truther meetups in Union Square Park with some like-minded um, people. And all of that proved to be sort of fruitless, obviously. And Maddie, my co-writer, she was really obsessed with Epstein as well. So we decided to channel our efforts into a script into a film because that seemed like the best the best use of that of that energy yeah did you make a movie about something that scares you personally because watching this it just occurred to me this is actually scary in a way that you know a ghost is chasing us isn't really scary or mm. because it's real yeah yeah um I am scared of, yeah, of human trafficking, yeah. of a loss of like one's agency. Um, yeah, I'm scared of, you know, the power of elites of the ruling class. Um, and the atrocities for which they'll like never really be held accountable for. I think yeah, all of that is, is pretty scary. Yeah. Without ruining the movie for anybody, I think you have a, mm -hmm. a very cold, really perfect ending. Oh, thank you. Very subtle. And it just, it drives home exactly what you're talking about. And I thought mm -hmm. it was extremely well done. Um, something else about the filmmaking here. There's a lot of language in this, and I'm a Red Scare listener. Um, yeah. Podcast. There's a lot of language in the movie that just feels very real and authentic and like is kind of frowned on now. Words, words like retard that we're not supposed to use anymore. Um, yeah. But it does feel like people really do say that. And it also tells me as a viewer that the movie is kind of not playing by the Hollywood rules of 
the right people will win, everything will turn out okay. It's a yeah. nice cue that these are real people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think no one in the film is really, you know, heroic. Um, my producers had some concerns um, in a later scene where my character calls the Greg character a faggot. Um, and they thought that that would, um, that audiences would be less endeared to me or to my character rather if she uses um, a slur. And my thinking was sort of like, well, she's not really a hero. You know, she's sort of a, one of the protagonists, I guess, of the film, but she's like a methamphetamine addict who is um, preoccupied with the Epstein saga for a variety of reasons, but no one in the film, even Addie, who is like the most, you know, victimized person she played played by Betsy Brown she's the girl who you know becomes possessed largely because she's the most vulnerable even she I think isn't like a you know she's incredibly needy and manipulative um uh Noelle's character obviously is cruel in her own way the people in the film are cruel to one another they speak the way that like many people speak yeah because it wasn't it was written by me and Maddie and not like um, focus grouped or subject to like uh, sensitivity readers or anything like that. Yeah. But it, it also like takes away the guardrails a little bit. You know, 80s horror movies are scarier than modern horror movies because you know that there's not the morality attached to them that there is now. Yeah. 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 The great character. I love because he's so kind of casually useless mm-hmm. and inept. Yeah. And there's something that you guys talked about on the Alex Jones episode of Red Scare that sort of haunts me. I forget where mm-hmm. the quote is originally from, but it's the one about don't attribute to malice that which can be attributed to ineptitude or stupidity or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Greg seems very much the epitome of that. He, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely not malicious. He sort of means well, but he's a bit guileless. Um, His relationship with Addie is one of my favorite dynamics in the film. I think they both give such great performances. um, And he does such a good job of fielding her kind of like bottomless neediness and his... Yeah, his indifference is almost like his defense to it, you know, psychologically. He like, he is a little like withdrawn the way that men sometimes are in in relationships. Um, And so I think that there's, and he's, you know, part of his dumbness is something he reiterates in the film a couple of times is like, are you fucking with me or am I being pranked? He's also like, he's also incredibly insecure and like unsure of really his like his standing and obviously he has this like downtrodden mailroom job and stuff yeah he's a <laughs> i don't know he's such a good subtle comical character i, I he did a fantastic job he's also my producer played my mark rapaport oh awesome uh-huh oh. I know and we had we had written the part originally for someone else who ended up not being able to do it and i was um 
I had to do a lot of revisions to the script because we also lost the original location that we wanted to shoot at, which was a more decrepit apartment. <laughs> um, so then we had to to rewrite it to be kind of like a, a believably nice apartment, but also to fill in the things in the script that deal with like the actual architectural details of the space. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I was like sitting around with Mark one day in a pre-production meeting and I was kind of like, you could do this. You could be like a big bumbling guy. <laughs> and he was like, really? Thank you so much for having faith in me. And he really rose to the occasion. And yeah, I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I like all the casting in this movie a lot. Um, and just the interplay of everybody. It feels like a group of friends. Well, actually, uh, Eugene Kotlyarenko did an interview a little while ago where he said that the way to make a movie is you figure out which of your friends are camera ready and able uh, to do it. And it feels kind of like that's what you did. Sort of, yeah, yeah. In okay. retrospect, I maybe wouldn't have acted in it. Why? Um, um, I think at various points it hurt my performance and then at other points it probably hurt my directing. I think maybe if I had had more time or it was very stressful. It was very, very challenging for me, um, especially because I prefer to act in a very like immersive way. So it's hard to split one's attention and to like run a set while you're also, especially in the last act, you know, my character is hysterical. It's yeah. hard to kind of keep your wits about you and make the decisions that you might need to make to make the movie as best as you can. I, I don't know if this is a thing you sort of specialize in, but there are sort of throwaway looks or expressions or reaction shots. Mm. There are certain people who are really good at them. Bobby Moynihan on Saturday Night Live used to be super good at them. And I think you're uh -huh. super there, especially the scene in the uh, magical apothecary. There's just the kind of like expression uh. yourself like, oh, hmm, eh, and then sort of jerk back to life and made me laugh really funny and thank you thank you yeah that was a fun one to find in the in the edit with sophie cora yeah speaking of sophie she just wrote a great piece for us she um, really did i loved it so much she burned it down i mean the idea of the gist of it was for people who haven't read it um pre-code hollywood really didn't know what the rules were and they had to make their own rules and we're at a point now where people have to not be afraid and have to go out and make their own rules which i think is something you guys did with this movie yeah and that there's sort of a self-imposed code in hollywood now that's not as formal as it was you know in the 40s but now that there is there the other is a lot of like fear and trepidation i think and like a, a kind of self-policing in the way that a lot of contemporary filmmaking is done definitely yeah, obviously there are reasons that's happening. I mean, there's there's like social pressure and things like that. And some of it is very well-meaning and others just feels a little performative and fake. Um, but you were able to just step outside of it completely and the podcast is able to step outside of it completely. Why why do you think you're able to do that? Why, why are you able to kind of get away with it in a way that other people aren't or are afraid to try to get away with it? Uh, well, there was an interview actually with Quentin Tarantino recently. I forget with who he was probably doing like a podcast circuit, but someone was lamenting, you know, how like you can't make movies like that anymore. You can't make a movie like Pulp Fiction anymore. And he said something that I thought was very astute, which was like, you weren't allowed 
<laughs> make them then it's like if you're waiting for permission then you'll never get it and the way that you are able to circumnavigate stuff like that is just to do it yeah yeah and do it relatively inexpensively so that you don't have to get anybody's money well yeah yeah well that's that's indie filmmaking yeah 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 how do you feel about the moment that you're in right now with this movie coming out in the middle of the Ghislaine? I always say it wrong. Ghislaine yeah, Maxwell. everyone does. Me too, even. Yeah, Ghislaine Maxwell, yes. Yeah, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial succession ends, will be over by the time this comes out. Um, had a great, have had a great run on it. Um, the podcast is in full force. I mean, did you try to get the movie to come out specifically when it came out to sort of ride this wave or did it just did you kind of luck into it no absolutely not um I wanted the movie to come out much sooner because I had made the movie almost two years ago now um uh if it was up to me I probably would have released it over the summer Mm. um but the way that just like it works with distribution and film release schedules. It was like, and ended up being time then. No one, I didn't know that the Ghislaine trial would be happening now either. It could have been delayed in a lot of ways and the succession of it all. Yeah, also was just kind of a happy accident, I guess. Are you watching the trial? Uh, Well, they're not- uh, Honoring the trial. They're not filming it, but I'm, I'm engaged with uh, True and On, the podcast hosted by Brace Belden and Liz Franzek, and they are actually at the trial. So they're doing like live reportage from it. And I'm like paying attention, but I don't think anything, you know, that groundbreaking has, has come to light yet. Yeah, I actually learned more about her from the movie than I have from the trial coverage so far. The detail about the jet ski and the sharks is insane. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she actually rode the jet ski, but <laughs> that was in, I think that, yeah, that was in someone's, someone's testimony. Yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, she was fully like taking girls' passports and stuff. So you're in New York now. You were born in Belarus? Belarus. Yes. And then you had circus performer parents who brought you to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if this is super reductive, but those two details I think are sort of so helpful to the kind of artist that you are. Like first, coming out of the Soviet Union, do you think that that influenced the way that you think or kind of an appreciation of free speech that maybe Americans don't appreciate as much anymore? Um, maybe, yeah. I, people have made that kind of, that, you know, that there there is a tradition of like, um, Russian American political thinkers like Emma Goldman, for example, who like are um, have an investment in in freedom from from tyranny and in in expression. Um, yeah, maybe, but I think I also have a kind of Soviet sensibility, a li- a bit of like more like maybe like someone like Shostakovich, you know, where you just kind of like keep your head down and do the work that you need to do to do the work that you need to do, you know, within the political confines that you find yourself in. 
there's also it's such a sort of cliche to say but the idea of old countries and new countries it seems like there's kind of a not soviet but a russian idea of all this will pass you know this has happened before this will happen again there are certain things that we can never change and yeah i think that that more than more than anything than like a kind of like you know maybe a lot of people from post-soviet countries end up um having kind of like a reactionary libertarian impulse you know a lot of like especially older people who are like from from poland or ukraine um when they come to america they like they really cling hard to what their perceived freedoms um but i think for me being born like right around the collapse of the soviet union yeah, has given me a perspective on like how quickly things can go to shit and how you can't really count on anyone to protect you. The how quickly things can go to shit is terrifying because I never grew up with that. I always grew up thinking America is boring and stolid and at least we have. <laughs> yeah. Ability, and I don't feel like that at all anymore. No, yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> wow. I mean, do you feel, do you have the sense of it's all going to shit? Um, I think it'll go, I think it'll, I don't think it's going to be like apocalyptic. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think it'll be a slow, slow decline, much like how the Soviet Union was. And there certainly are many parallels. I mean, you know, back in like the early pandemic and now again with supply chain shortages and stuff, it's like, my parents certainly never thought that they, you know, fled Belarus and the post-Soviet Union to wait in like a breadline again, you know? Yeah. Does the movie and kind of it's, I feel like it's incredibly, incredibly timely and it's also kind of timeless and I'd love to get into that a little bit, but does that hmm. feel like it's part of this current moment? I mean, just the sense of chaos and the sense of there's nothing very little feels reliable anymore um i mean it was as it was it's as current now as it was when i made it you know um maybe more more so i think yeah naively we refer to the epstein stuff as kind of a paradigm shift um not knowing obviously that there would be this way more drastic kind of global paradigm shift of, of the pandemic yeah. Um, sorry, what was your question? Well, <laughs> I guess it kind of goes back to the thing I wanted to ask about the circus. Like, are you comfortable in that sort of moment of appeasal and chaos? And do you kind of enjoy the circus? And I know that you guys talked about this on the podcast a little bit where somebody said that you were basically just like embrace. I think he said that you were embracing chaos and it was like sort of like, like the Red Scare podcast was just kind of you know, laughing as the world burns, which I don't oh, think. Oh, right. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't, I would disagree with that. I don't think I'm a nihilist. I think it's actually russophobic to characterize me as, as a nihilist. <laughs> um, I think maybe I'm more comfortable in chaotic circumstances than most. Maybe I have a higher threshold for it because I was never. I never had any illusions of uh, stability. Yeah. Um, 
And then growing up in Las Vegas, I think probably also has given me, it's a pretentious word, but kind of like a postmodern perspective um, already. Las Vegas, at least used to, and still does, I think, like it feels like it's, um, an acceler an, a space where capitalism has kind of like accelerated in the way that like the rest of the world is kind of caught up to. Yeah, and the way that nothing is real and it's all kind of a game and your your money isn't really money, it's chips and everything else is kind of amazing. Um, right. I mean play it as it and then you yeah, play it as it lays. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which sort of brings us to you referred to New York as being more psychogeographic. This is in our article in Movie Maker. You referred to uh, as being more psychogeographically comfortable and nurturing than LA. Mm. And I think I know what you mean, but I, I love that about, can you sort of expound on what that means? Because that is something that I feel in New York and I really appreciate it about New York. Um, well, the grid mm -hmm. for starters, you know, it's like Manhattan is an island. It's very manageable. And I at least have been able to achieve many things here that I was not able to achieve in LA, you know, partly due to the geographic sprawl, partly due to me not knowing how to drive, but also the way that like, um, yeah, you're less atomized in, in New York. Um, although obviously, of course, there still is like income inequality in very extreme ways it's like you can get on a train and you can go to the upper east side you are more you're more able to encounter different kinds of people and like bump up against them and in that friction there's like opportunity um yeah. whereas in LA you know like the train doesn't even go to Beverly Hills yeah you literally you literally can't you can't get up to the hills <laughs> and that's how they designed it yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's mm -hmm. a very. Um, I find it to be an extremely stressful place, and New York to be a weirdly relaxing place, which I know is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Yeah, no, I agree. I feel way, I feel much more like safe and at ease in in New York City, just because I feel like there's more accountability in that in that like friction that I that I described. Whereas LA, especially, I mean, I was just there for the, the theatrical release of my movie. Um, and I, yeah, I still don't drive. So I stayed in, in Koreatown and still, you know, in, insist on having like a pedestrian lifestyle. Yeah. And the, the neighborhood I used to live in, K-Town is like, yeah, I mean, it's like the, the, the homelessness and the despair in Los Angeles feels um, extreme. Yeah. And nightmarish, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I live in West Hollywood and it's the same thing. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and I lived there because it was walkable. Um, yeah. But um, I, I feel like you're one of the few people and one of the more interesting people sort of out there in the public space because you and Anna also are so hard to sort of quantify or pin down and I think people are very afraid of that where you guys get attached to people say you're like alt-right apologists or something which of course I don't mm. think you are um, yeah. just because you're 
a person who's kind of coming from a left socialist perspective, but is also willing to criticize the left and socialists, do you find that frustrating, lonely, strange? Like just to be, do you feel misunderstood and do you care? Um, I do feel misunderstood, um, but I feel like I'm on the right side of history and, you know, I have clarity at least about my own, my own values, which is all that really ultimately matters. But also I think left and right are becoming uh, increasingly irrelevant political categories. We just had um, our new episode that we posted today. uh, We talked to Slavoj Žižek again, who we've had on the show before, and he just wrote a new book um, that's a little bit you know, characteristically incoherent. But one of the things that he did touch on was like the recent referendums in Chile. And I have, I know a lot of people who are politically on, you know, I know a lot of leftists in Mexico, for example, who um, are like Marxist, Leninist leftists who say that they, in America at least, feel more affiliated with the Republican party because the Republican party has come to represent the interests of the ruling class much more than the Democrats who basically are protecting the interests of like digital capitalists. Mm. But even within that, they're like, there really basically is no difference between the two party system at all. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess I find it confusing why people cling to these like seemingly antiquated ideas of, of, of left and right when there's so little Mm, I don't know political opportunity on the left at least how do you mean little political opportunity you mean to well there's I mean is Bernie Sanders gonna run again like he's how many more times can Bernie (laughs) right funnel funnel money into the the democratic establishment you know and continue to lose there aren't there's not a lot of like energy in America, at least on the left, that I feel like is inspiring. Yeah. Do you feel that talking about anything political is a problem as you become more successful in Hollywood? Or do you feel, talking to you, I feel like it's very coherent and makes sense. It's like, you're just gonna keep doing what you do and not really ask them for approval. Um, Yeah. Not ask them for money. I'd prefer not to talk about politics, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I don't think it's as also I don't think it is as rigid as people imagine yeah I don't either I think when you actually talk to people one-on-one almost no one follows any strict rigid political yeah, yeah yeah and I think that'll change um, and I think Hollywood like many American institutions like you know, the university system, for example, are on the decline. And so things, I think Sophie touches on this, maybe even in in her essay, it's like things are going to have to change because it's not going to be sustainable. So how do you stake out your lane as a filmmaker, knowing that, knowing that things are changing, knowing about the way technology is changing? Um, The I don't don't know if everybody would have been able to do what you did with Scary of 61st to put a movie together and I'm sure it was very hard, but yeah. to quickly and effectively and to get across what you wanted to get across. Um, 
how do you sort of plan going forward, knowing what you know? Um, I have another script. I have another movie that I like would like to make that I have been working on actually for years that I wrote the first draft of maybe like four or five years ago with another writing partner of mine named Robbie Barnett. Um, and when Scary kind of seemed like it was going to have traction, we sort of revised it and developed like a serviceable draft that we recently sent out to production companies. And I don't know, we'll see. Um, I'm not interested, I guess, in making like compromises as a, as a filmmaker or, you know, as little as I have to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope to, I hope to keep working and I hope that the, the success of Scary and like, you know, the larger career of my trajectory affords me opportunities to pursue things creatively that I'm interested in. But of course you never know. I'm not saying the previous questions were not stupid questions, but I have two very stupid questions. I was hoping okay. I okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm done. Um, yeah. Yeah. One is Sophie talked about going out to dinner with Whit Stillman and how much she loves Whit Stillman. And mm. one of my favorite movies is Last Days of Disco. Yeah, mine too. Oh, okay. Because I felt like there was a little bit of Last Days of Disco in Scary in the opening. Like yes. The... Okay. Yeah. We literally watched that scene in Last Days when they're looking at apartments just as like a template for like how one writes a scene where people look at apartments. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. Oh my God, but, you and Chloe Savinia are kind of, you know, mutual admirers. And I thought you were maybe, almost your line readings were a little bit reminiscent of hers in a good way. Oh, that's, that's sweet. Um, I, um, I also, I mean, I'm also a huge, huge fan of Whit Stillman and I don't want him to see scary at all. <laughs> I would, I would love to work with him in the future. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. Yeah. And my last question um, mm -hmm. on, on Succession, who named her Comfrey? That is such a great name. The writers. Just, I mean, that was her name when I auditioned for the part, which was you, one of the only pieces of information I really I really had about her. Do you know the origin of it? Where, Where is Comfrey from? What kind of name is Comfrey? I was unsure even initially until they gave Comfrey a last name midway through the season, which is Pellet's. Um, if it was her first or or last name, I sort of assumed in the decisions I made about it, the character that it was her first. Um, well, comfrey is a kind of plant. I I know from googling it. Um, it's a very British name, as are I think. There's a lot of like details on Succession um, that I think have to do with the majority of the writers being British and the writers room being in London. Um, but my idea about Comfrey, and this is like, you know, non-confirmable because no one ever told me, but I guess I sort of thought she had like hippie parents. Mm. Um, so she has like a kind of like fun hippie name and maybe she experienced some kind of like, mm, neglect in her childhood in that way and that made her very um tight flint kind of flinty and type a and that's why she is so high achieving and does 
attempt to take her job so seriously, I think is because of her, her upbringing. And I think her name being Comfrey has to do. Yeah. I know someone exactly with her parents. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a real, that's a common type, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's like really- her her parents maybe weren't total were didn't totally parent her correctly and so she had to kind of parent herself and now she's kind of parenting Kendall. That's it. That's the episode. I'm Tim Malloy, and thank you to Dasha Nekrasova, director of the Scary of Sixty First, which is out now and digitally and on demand on December twenty fourth, aka Christmas Eve. Uh, Merry Christmas to you if that's a thing that you do. It's a thing that I do. Because we talked about Last Days of Disco, I just wanted to mention that one of the best Christmas memories I have was a Christmas that should have been really bad because I was far away from my family and friends. I was in Phoenix, Arizona for work and I was just totally by myself. Nothing to do. For some reason I had Christmas Day off but not the day before or after. So what I did is I ate a lot of cheese that my mom had sent me and I had a little Witt Stillman marathon and it was bliss. I still think back on it really happily. And Last Days of Disco is a movie that I have in the back of my mind pretty much all the time. In fact, the music that you're listening to right now is a little ditty that I made inspired by last days of disco it's just a movie that i love in ways i can't explain i just recommend checking it out so if you find yourself with nothing to do this holiday season maybe watch some witch stillman movies um it made me very happy all those years ago see you soon thank you for listening and merry merry christmas